Thank you very much. And yes, I, I did make a donation last night. Um, so, uh, and actually, it's not clinic. I got to be at the hospital doing a kyphoplasty in the morning. Um, but, you know, I, again, I want to thank everybody from Pain Week. Um, Deborah has put on such a, a wonderful curriculum each year. This is my third year here, and um, each year gets better. Uh, for those that heard me say this already, I truly mean it when I say this is unique to all the other pain meetings I go to because um, th there's just a, a broad spectrum of uh, non-interventionalists uh, where I can interact with and, and learn from, from you all. So with that said, um, I am an interventional um, pain physician, um, originally trained as an anesthesiologist, uh, did my fellowship in, uh, at Hopkins and uh, practiced in, in the middle central New Jersey uh, in the, in the country, I'm a country doc. So today we're going to talk about all the interventions that uh, have shown to help reduce patients' opiate needs. So there's a lot of technology that comes out, um, but we don't always look at how is it helping our patients in terms of other than pain scores. So uh, I think industry is moving to, away from, well, is it a six or a five or a four or a two, uh, but really looking at function. Are you able to get out of bed in the morning? Are you sleeping better? Uh, but one of the other factors that we're looking at is how are you taking your pain medications? Are you taking some? Are you taking none? Are you taking more? Uh, and that all factors into how well these things are effective. So if I put in, say, a spinal cord stimulator and my patient's sitting on the couch uh, doing nothing and taking their three Vicodins a day, I haven't done a damn thing for that patient other than put a, a $60,000 device in their butt. Um, so with that said, let's talk about some of the newer, in, newer technologies that are emerging that has shown data to, to prove that these are effective. Here are my disclosures. Um, I am very much interested in doing research, so a lot of this stuff uh, comes from uh, doing research with these device companies, things that may not even be available in this country yet. So another disclosure is I will mention some non-FDA approved things, and I'll, and I'll state that ahead of time when I, when I talk about them. So learning objectives, uh, let's talk about what pain is and analgesia. kind of always want to talk about uh, where we come from to, to learn where we're going. Uh, we're going to discuss the impact of chronic pain. We're going to discuss the evolution of opiate therapy a little bit because that subject's been kind of beaten to death. Uh, we're going to review some of the current and future applications of technology. Obviously, this is all geared towards uh, chronic pain treatment. And then we're going to review some of the, 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 the evidence that come along with, with this. Um, it's basically what, what I just said. This is the outline we're going to talk about. Um, a lot of it is going to be heavily weighed on, on some of the neuromodulation technologies. Uh, some will be on minimally invasive spinal interventions. Uh, those are all emerging as, um, as things that can reduce opiate uh, needs. Uh, for, those that was, for those of you who were at my um, earlier talk on spinal stenosis, some of these technologies have shown to reduce opiate intake as well. So pain, it's an emotional experience. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, there, there, there's an ongoing debate on whether or not the, uh, uh, whether or not the IASP, IASP is about to change that definition. Uh, they're going to change the wording a little bit, but it's still emotional uh, experience. So hundreds of years ago, um, a philosopher named Descartes thought this is how our nervous system sends pain. So you step, step in a hot fire, ow, it's hot. Um, there's some type of wire or cord that's attached to a bell in her head and it rings and it says, ow, I'm hurting. 
Well, it's not that much different than what it is um, the way we understand our nervous system. There is some form of an information gatherer uh, or receptor uh, at one end. There's some sort of a, a, a wire or a neuron that transmits all that information to the brain where it's interpreted as pain. So where did analgesia uh, arise? So back in 3000 BC, the Sumerians were the first to cultivate poppy seeds, uh, which is later uh, to be known as opium. So uh, this was first written about um, in Homer's, um, uh, Homer's uh, uh, story about Helen of Troy uh, grieving over the, the loss of uh, Odysseus. So morphine uh, is the derivative of opium, later came codeine and heroin and oxycodone that we all know of. So how did the ancient folks do this? So back in, back in the way back, uh, in 2000 BC, we have um, sort of historical documentation in the Han Dynasty of using uh, acupuncture in the ear, which sometimes we still use today uh, to treat chronic pain. Um, this is another one about the, the Persians uh, cauterizing the external ear uh, to treat migraine headaches. So morphine was named after Morpheus, the, the god of dreams. Uh, it was first uh, discovered in, in 1803. Uh, it was made commercially available by Merck uh, in the early 1800s. But a lot of people talk about our opiate crisis now. It wasn't really a new thing. We had problems with opioids in the way back. So 1849, this, this potion, uh, this was sold as, uh, sold as uh, Mrs. Charlotte Winslow's uh, in, in Bangor, Maine. Uh, each ounce contained 65 milligrams of morphine, and they advertised this um, including everything that ails you as well as the pain that a child would suffer from uh, the discomfort from teething. So imagine giving 65 milligrams of morphine to a teething baby. Diacetylmorphine. Uh, th this was um, created by adding a couple additional acetyl rings onto um, morphine uh, in 1874. Uh, became four times more potent than morphine. It was manufactured by Bayer. Um, it's heroin. And up until recently, it was still commercially available in Europe. Uh, obviously, in this country, it's a Schedule I uh, substance, and it has uh, no medical uh, value. In terms of contemporary anesthesia or acute analgesia, um, back in 1846, this is at the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, um, this is when ether was first used on a dental extraction. Uh, this was when the, the, the term, you know, this is no humbug was, was first coined. So um, our ability to, to, to perform analgesia uh, goes back several hundred years. Today, chronic pain is a different story. Um, sometimes one in 10, I think it's more probably closer to one in five Americans suffer from chronic pain. It has a huge economic impact loss of productivity. Um, it's the number one health crisis in the country in terms of uh, prescription medications. Uh, the good news is this number has, the death toll has slowly stabilized and the last year was the first year that actually declined. Um, so this is an NIH survey in 2012. 50 million adults experience some sort of pain every day. Um, it signifies an overall, um, essentially having uh, poor health. Uh, and there's some surveys that says females, elderly, and non-Hispanics um, report pain more, more often. Um, 
I just put that in there. Uh, apparently, Asians don't have pain as much. So, <laughs> so opiate crisis. While this is not new to anyone sitting in this room, I'm sure everyone um, has 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 treated patients, have been impacted. A lot of us have been impacted in their in their in their own personal lives. So, over 72 thousand Americans died in 2017 from drug-related overdoses. Um, approximately 50,000 of them were involving opioids. Uh, a lot of them are attributed to synthetics. So um, you probably see on the news this whole thing about uh, synthetic fentanyls, and it's absolutely true. So um, I have a couple patients of mine who are undercover DEA agents, and this stuff is just coming in by the truckloads. Um, um, the either through Mexico or through overseas, essentially containers fulls of it. Um, he'll tell me that uh, they'll send in 50 container trucks. And I said, don't the, don't the Border Patrol stop them? Yeah, we'll stop about three of them, and the rest just floods right through because you can't check every single one of them. So this is a major problem. Uh, the paradigm shift in opiate therapy, well, uh, we know that there's lack of long-term efficacy in treating chronic pain using um, only opioids. Uh, there is a, t- a risk of tolerance, dependency, and abuse. Um, so now we have guidelines and there's sessions dedicated to that. So I'm not going to go into the, and belabor that uh, too much. So we know that this algorithm or this paradigm is changing. So we know that interventions are, are, are thought of earlier than uh, maybe utilizing chronic pain medications. Uh, in fact, this, this is an archaic um, uh, pain ladder. This was developed by the, by the WHO for treating uh, cancer pain. But we know that we should move interventions um, quicker and um, probably um, delay um, opioids uh, if, if you can. So the emergence of electroceuticals. Um, I gave a talk on this, I think, last year. Uh, these are bioelectronic devices. They're therapeutic devices, um, either external or implantables, uh, delivering some form of electrical charge um, to modulate the, the, the nervous system um, and to alter disease state sometimes. Uh, this is a huge business. Um, projected, oh, that was a typo. It's not, not that far away. Um, it's supposed to be by 2025. That too is, I apologize. So the ancient folks used these technologies in, ter- in, in place of pharmaceuticals. So on the left, you see a Baghdad battery. This was used for medicinal uh, purposes. Back in 250 BC, this was found outside what we know, now know as Baghdad. Uh, this is a clay jar with an asphalt stopper. It's, um, it's got an iron rod. It's lined by copper. So if you put something that has um, electrolytes in it, so like vinegar, it can generate a charge. Essentially, this is an archaic battery. So you put this on some uh, form of a um, uh, part of the body that has some kind of ailment or pain. Uh, this was supposedly uh, used as treatment. Um, any kind of animal that ch- carries a charge, you know, the torpedo fish was, was made famous by Scorbonius Largus, who used it on um, uh, folks in the court of the, the um, Caesar Claudius uh, for treatment of headaches. So they would you know, slap an electrical charge fish on your forehead and zap you and say, well, you're cured. These two guys... Um, Pioneers in, in, in my world, um, Wall and Malzac, they're the guys who first um, described this gate theory of pain. 
Uh, even though that we know that neuromodulation is not quite based on this theory, there have been several modifications to this, but it led to this guy, um, Dr. Norman Sheely, to develop or to utilize electricity as the first form of spinal cord stimulation. Um, two years ago was 50-year anniversary. So he used it on two patients that had intractable cancer pain. Even though they still died, uh, they were able to have uh, better pain control. Um, I expect you guys to know all of these studies uh, at the end of the talk um, in order to collect your CMEs, but really these are landmark articles that tell us that neuromodulation has helped patients with chronic pain. Uh, the first one has to do with uh, comparisons with uh, conventional medical therapy um, versus spinal cord stimulation in the treatment of complex regional pain syndrome, or RSD. Uh, the next study, uh, Dr. Rick, uh, Richard North at Hopkins, he was a neurosurgeon who uh, compared patients on having a second operation on their spine versus a spinal cord stimulator. This was a crossover design, meaning that people who ended up having a spinal cord stimulator did better than the people who had a second operation. And in fact, those who had a second operation, some of them end up getting a spinal cord stimulator. Um, some other studies, the, uh, the PROCESS trial was one of the earlier studies that compared uh, conventional medical management uh, versus spinal cord stimulation in the treatment of uh, failed back surgery or, or post-laminectomy syndrome. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Kumar um, compared um, SCS versus conventional, management, uh, conventional medical management as well. So these are the landmark articles. That led to all of this stuff. So um, these are various forms of spinal cord stimulators, um, various companies. Right now, um, there's about five, almost six. There's probably about a seventh coming to market pretty soon. They're all very similar. They all have a battery attached to some wires. These wires um, transmit some sort of electrical current into the epidural space where it modulates your spinal cord, uh, and they target specific traveling neurons uh, to, to mitigate pain. The traditional versions, they stimulated the, the larger alpha beta, uh, A beta fibers. These are the sensory fibers. So this is the concept of, of, of gate theory of pain, where if, if you felt buzzing and tingling in the area, then you normally have pain. Um, you would likely feel the same pain because that gate is closed. Um, that's not exactly true, uh, but that was the initial use of that, that, that technology. Um, and these fibers uh, travel in the dorsal column, so therefore we stimulated the dorsal column. So that's why these devices are sometimes called dorsal column stimulators as well. Things have come and come full circle because I'll talk about a technology which is based upon traditional spinal cord stimulation, but with an added advantage of being able to sense what your spinal cord is doing uh, while the stimulation is, is going on. It's called closed-loop technology, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. So by using wires, targeting specific uh, locations in the, in, the, in, in the spine, we can uh, essentially generate paresthesias in a portion of your, your back or your leg uh, to to, 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 um, uh, to augment or to, um, to, to, to cover or to treat your chronic pain. So initial theories were that the better we're able to overlap this, this buzzing with your chronic pain, the better we're able to treat your pain. So this was the earlier uh, theories in terms of paresthesia-dependent uh, uh, treatment. So as... In terms of coverage, the better coverage you got, the better pain relief you got. Patients underwent a trial, meaning they got some percutaneous needles placed in the back, a couple wires go in, 
they're awoken in the middle of the case saying, do you feel buzzing and tingling in your back or your leg? Um, if, they're, if they're satisfied where they felt it, uh, we left it in there for about a week or so. Um, they go home with addressing such as this. Um, it gets removed in the office if patients tell me that they've had you know, uh, considerable, usually about 50% pain reduction, uh, they're considered a candidate for a permanent implantation of this device. So all along, the patient is the end sort of, um, is the subjective end to some, someone telling me how did this work. So we really never had an objective way to measure how well these devices work. That's going to change very soon, and I'll get to that. So we came across the renaissance of, of neuromodulation. The bottom one is actually a real picture. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Jason Pope, um, but he happened to uh, kind of be in this pose. This was not, not staged at all. This, this happened to be at a, at a dinner we were at. Um, so, so, so now he, he, he's known as uh, the Stim Jesus. So things have come along since that original buzzing and tingling. We now have adaptive stim, meaning that as patients move, the stimulators can, can adjust, uh, kind of like your iPhones. When you tip your iPhone to the side, it knows that it goes to the side. They've become more and more MRI compatible. Uh, we now have very unique waveforms. Some have bursts. Some have waveforms that you can barely feel. Uh, some have waveforms that mimics the way your, your, your own brain transmits signals. We have novel targets. We don't always have to target the dorsal horn. We can target uh, the dorsal root ganglion. Uh, this is what's really exciting. Um, this is not available yet. This is not an FDA-approved uh, device closed-loop technology, but I'll touch upon this. This is the, for the first time we're able to record what the spinal cord is doing uh, as we're stimulating it. Next, vagal nerve stimulation has become somewhat um, uh, available. Uh, initially, was de designed and in, in thought uh, in used in treatment of seizures and, um, uh, and refractory uh, depression. But now we have percutaneous uh, uh, nerve uh, vagal nerve stimulators to treat migraine headaches. So I know at this study, there's, uh, at this talk, at this uh, meeting, there's a lot of uh, sessions on treatment of chronic migraine headaches. Uh, for those who are headache specialists, uh, you might want to look into that as well. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Basically, this technology came about, oh, this was probably about eight years ago. Uh, they put an accelerometer in a battery. Um, when patients sit down, lie flat, uh, the battery can tell. Therefore, we can program it so that the patients don't get an um, upsurge of stimulation uh, so they don't kind of go, oh, I'm getting zapped or shocked. Uh, this worked well, but it wasn't perfect. But we did find that uh, with this technology, patient had to adjust their stimulated device less, and it gave them a better um, interference, uh, interface, gave, them, gave patients a better experience at their uh, stimulation uh, therapy. Novel targets. We can target the dorsal root ganglion now, uh, vagal nerve. Peripheral nerves. Uh, peripheral nerve stimulation hasn't been perfected uh, up until now because the equipment wasn't there. So we were using spinal cord stimulating equipment for peripheral nerves, and they were bulky, and they didn't work right. But now there's a, a few companies um, developing specific dedicated peripheral nerve stimulation applications for that. Uh, looking at multifidus uh, stimulation. So instead of stimulating the spinal cord, uh, spinal cord we can stimulate the, nerve, I mean, the muscles that support your spine. And by uh, restoring their, 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 their function, restoring their strength, we can stabilize your spine. There's some interesting uh, data that's coming out of this research. So um, we moved away from paresthesias. Remember I talked to earlier about you have to have buzzing and tingling the areas where you have pain? Well, that theory changed maybe about two years ago uh, when these devices became 
paresthesia free or paresthesia independent where you can have um, frequencies that you don't always feel the buzzing and tingling. You can have really high frequency, um, 10,000 hertz, uh, beyond the perceptual threshold. Uh, there's some great data showing that this became quite efficacious in terms of lower back and, and leg treatment. Um, burst is having pulse trains of, of certain frequencies that mimic the way our body or our brain transmit um, uh, pain signals. Um, they can also affect uh, some of the effective uh, uh, pathways in, in our brain in terms of not how we feel pain, but how we uh, emotionally experience pain. So you may feel pain, but you may not affect you as much. This is really, really new. This is um, developed by one of my friend and colleague, Dr. Uh, Vallejo over in Illinois, uh, targeting glial cells in your spinal cord. Uh, this is really fascinating uh, technology, uh, looking at how the supporting cells of our spinal cord and our, and our nervous system actually play in the way how pain is being propagated in our spinal cord. So just to kind of recap, this is what a burst train looks like. Um, and they don't always target the the, the alpha, uh, a, a beta fibers, but they also target a form of C fibers uh, that travel in, in lamina 1, which is uh, part of the, the inhibitory or the effective portion of pain. So uh, there's ongoing data on, on the use of burst technology as well. This is high frequency. It became available in this country uh, three, three and a half years ago. Uh, this is the landmark article that got this approved in this country showing that high-frequency spinal cord stimulation uh, was quite uh, superior to traditional stimulation, uh, bringing it from the 50-50 club where 50% of the patients got 50% pain relief to the 78% club. So 78% of the patients got at least 50% pain relief in, in this study. And this study was carried out to two years showing longevity of, of this. So uh, this is why... Uh, I have adopted high frequency in my own practice, uh, and I use quite a bit of this stuff. This was a study. Uh, was a large, randomized, prospective, multi, multi-centered trial. Uh, generated level one evidence for the treatment of uh, chronic low back and lower extremity pain utilizing high frequency stimulation. Of this data, there were some uh, initial hints that we were able to reduce opioid needs uh, from that data. And now this particular company is going after additional targets like um, upper limb pain, um, peripheral polyneuropathy, uh, post-surgical uh, pain, uh, and non-surgical back pain. So not everybody needs a cut on their back uh, for, for, for refractory back pain. Uh, this is a study that came out of Europe. Uh, Dr. Alcazi uh, looked at his patients with chronic back pain uh, that were non-surgical candidates, meaning they went to see a surgeon that says, no, you're not a candidate for surgery. He placed one of these high-frequency devices in their back. Not only did they get long-term pain relief, this was out to 36 months, but he looked at opiate consumption. So we're starting to use opiate consumption as a, as a measuring stick in terms of how well these things are functioning or, 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 or behaving. So... 20 patients, three-year observational study um, looking at not just function but opiate usage. This is their reduction in pain. But what is fascinating is that 90% of the patients uh, were on opioids at baseline and only 12% of the patients were on opioids at 36 months. This is uh, looking at their ODI or their oswestry disability, meaning that their, uh, their disability score decreased, meaning their function increased. 
dorsal root ganglion stimulation, so we don't always have to put wires in the, in, in, in the epidural space. We can put it out into the foramen where the dorsal root ganglion lies, so we can target specific areas of the, uh, of the, uh, of the body, uh, for example, targeted foot, ankle, knee, groin, uh, being more precise in terms of how we stimulate. Uh, this is the pivotal trial, uh, which I was a part of, uh, looking at uh, CRPS for the lower extremities. So since that other list, we've accumulated many, many more clinical trials uh, to offer uh, evidence toward the use of all these technologies. Uh, this was the use of DRG. This was use of burst technology. This was high-frequency uh, this is the Avalon study looking at closed loop in Australia. This is the Evoke trial, which we've already submitted the manuscript looking at the closed loop technology, which I'm going to go talk about in, in, in a little bit. And this acute trial looks at this DTM um, in terms of how we can target glial cells in our uh, spinal cord. I'm going to kind of briefly go through this. Um, this was a, a collection of all the real-world patients, not just in this country, but overseas, who've had a spinal cord stimulator, specifically a high-frequency spinal cord stimulator placed. Um, between 2014 and 2018, um, of the four years that this device has been to market, um, eight global high-volume centers, they were able to reproduce the, the same responder rate as their initial pivotal trial, but what's interesting is that 32% of the patients um, also reduce their opioid intake. So we now are having emerging data that can support these technologies in terms of opioid reduction. And obviously, anytime you go to the FDA um, and, and the government, the buzzword is, as long as you can do something about the opioids, uh, they usually approve your grants. Uh, this is my results. So um, some of the companies that I work with were able, were able to compile my own results. So I've done about 200 of these high-frequency uh, stimulators, um, and patients are able to tell them, or they do regular phone calls to, to survey my patients. I'm able to not only see how well they're doing, I'm able to catch patients who are not doing so well so that I can attend to them and make sure that I'm troubleshooting appropriately. Uh, but what's interesting is not just these results, but in terms of medications. Um, there's a s small portion, 20% um, of my patients who've had spinal cord stimulators have reduced their medications. Um, and I attribute this increase to even either, either this device was not working as well or they've had other disease processes going on. Um, they've had improved in function, improved in sleep. So these are all the markers we're starting to look at in addition to a pain score because the pain scores are not only subjective, but they're less meaningful to me. I'm sure everyone who, who treats chronic pain, pain patients in this room would say that um, they all come with pain scores. A 10 out of 10 doesn't really mean that much, uh, but once I kind of learn more about my patients, understanding what their, what their pathology and what their function is, is when I first get a sense of are they getting better or not. I alluded to this peripheral nerve stimulation earlier. Uh, these devices have become FDA approved. They're much smaller and compact. These wires sometimes look like the size of a, a dental floss. Uh, there's more than one company made of, available. Uh, a lot of them have external power sources where it's like a, a little sticker that you put on their, uh, on their, on their arm or on their back. Um, and they offer low infection risk and they're a much cheaper cost. So we're, we're not talking about a, a $30,000, $40,000 device. We're talking about a, a $5,000 device that can give patients extended pain relief. 
and these are um, FDA approved. So we did this study. This was um, presented um, uh, at, at one of our recent meetings, um, the use of these peripheral nerve stimulators in treating post-amputation pain. So uh, unfortunately, we, we're, we're, we are seeing a lot of uh, veterans coming back from conflicts that have ampu amputations. Um, this has been shown to be effective in the treatment and not just um, residual limb pain, but phantom limb pain as well. In terms of chronic low back pain, um, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to say that I'm, I'm part of the, I'm an investigator on this study where we're looking at uh, stimulation of the multifidus muscle and the medial branch nerve. So um, uh, current therapies include, you know, you've all heard about uh, blocking medial branch nerves or uh, ablating nerves in terms of radiofrequency ablations. Well, this is not destructive. This is restorative. So by stimulating the medial branch nerve, as well as the multifidus muscle, we can have um, noticeable uh, significant pain relief by use of peripheral nerve stimulators. So this is another study by a company um, uh, overseas. Um, they did a study where they stimulated the multifidus muscle uh, and targeted that. They were able to, to show the efficacy, but uh, they didn't really meet their endpoint. So I'm, I'm questioning if this device will ever make it to market in this country. Um, hopefully they will because the results are actually pretty good. They just never met their endpoints. So this was really uh, uh, recent. Uh, this is a, um, a review done by my colleagues over at Mayo Clinic uh, looking at 12 studies of, of, of almost 1,000 patients from 1995 to 2017 showing that um, spinal cord stimulation um, has a higher chance of reducing pain and reducing uh, pain score, um, and these particular waveforms um, have shown uh, uh, superiority versus traditional uh, ones as well. So let's talk about this closed loop thing. So this is not an FDA-approved device or technology, um, but it's it's quite fascinating. So. So far, we've always stimulated the spinal cord, and the patient said, yeah, I feel buzzing or tingling in my foot or my back or my butt. Um, yeah, my pain's better. But we've never had real objective proof of this. So what this is doing is that by stimulating, but we are measuring at the same time. So we measure these ECAPs, um, these evoked compound action potentials. Um, that can be done million times uh, per day, and by measuring them, we can change the way we stimulate based upon uh, our understanding of these ECAPs and changed the stimulation pattern on a second-to-second -second basis so the patient is always kept in their perfect therapeutic window. So if you think about dosing somebody with an antibiotic, right? Sometimes we take antibiotics twice a day. Sometimes we take it four times a day. The best way to do it is a drip. Um, we, we check vanco levels and troughs and peaks and troughs. So think of this as I know what the peak and I know what the trough is, and I always keep my patients within those two boundaries in terms of stimulation. So um, this is a sort of a, a visual way to look at it. So as the stimulation is going in, the pulse train gets sent in, but while doing so, I'm measuring what the, the spinal cord is doing on a beat, not a beat, but on a pulse-by-pulse uh, -pulse basis. Think of this as the ECG of the spinal cord, if you will. And I compile these waveforms into a single compound action potential. And by doing so, 
I adjust the way the next stimulation pattern goes in, either up or down, depending on what the patient's doing. They could be coughing, they could be laughing, they could be sneezing, um, and I'll adjust it before they even sense that, you know, uh, upspike in their stimulation. So patients can remain in that therapeutic window, if you will. So again, these compound action, uh, co evoked action, compound action potentials called ECAPs uh, are a summation of the electrophysiologic responses from, from the nerve fibers that are being stimulated in, in the spinal, uh, spinal cord. So th that could be done on the same lead or wire that we placed in the, in, in the epidural space. This is the study that was first done in Australia uh, called the Avalon study. They're a little bit ahead uh, of, of us. Um, we did the EVOKE trial in this country. Um, I'm not going to go into details, but some of the data that was teased out of this study, at 18 months, they showed pain reduction in l leg and back. What's fascinating, again, the theme of this talk, obviously, we're looking at opiate reduction. Uh, they were able to show that um, patients had better quality of sleep, decreased disability, but also redu reduced in their opiate uh, intake. This is our data. Um, in this country, I was an investigator on the EVOKE study, looking at the same technology. Uh, hopefully, this will get published very soon. Um, we showed responder rates, meaning patients who reported 50% or greater in pain relief. Uh, this was with the closed-loop technology, and this is a fixed-loop uh, um, result in terms of regular spinal cord stimulation. We also showed reduction, we saw a reduction at three months of pain scores. Um, I can't share the 12-month study, that'll be published um, pretty soon. Equally, we saw 80% responders in back pain, 80% in leg pain. The reason why the control arm was so good, uh, people ask questions of why is your control arm um, results um, considerably better than the traditional spinal cord stimulation? Um, the answer to that is the, the control arm was programmed using closed-loop technology, but it wasn't switched on. So um, this was one of the only studies out there that's double-blinded, meaning that I had no clue which arm my patients were. Um, they were all implanted the same way. They all had the same devices. The only difference is whether or not they had this closed loop switched on or switched off. Um, they were still programmed using this ECAP um, measuring them, but they just never had the feedback turned on. And I didn't know which patients on which arm. Uh, so that's why uh, utilizing closed loop to Sorry, it doesn't show up very well. Utilizing closed loop to program patients may even offer a benefit in terms of their efficacy. They had better sleep, better disability. Um, this is describing their global impression of change, meaning how much better do they feel. Unfortunately, we didn't look at specific um, endpoint. We didn't look at opioid reduction because we kept everything the same. So everybody stayed on the same medication. So we wanted to reduce the, uh, limit the amount of variables. Uh, so... Patients who were on opioids, they were kept on opioids. Patients who were not on opioids never started opioids. So this is the, the DTM that I talked about, Dr. Vallejo, um, looking at um, glial cells. Essentially, this is still something that I have a hard time grasping, but I'm going to try to describe it as best as I can. Um, we know that we have a proportion of glial cells. They're support cells in our spinal cord. Um, they're not involved in transmission of signals, but they're involved in supporting the axons. Um, but
But if you apply certain signals to the glial cells, they don't have action potentials of their own, but they're able to charge and discharge and depolarize differently. And somehow it affects the way our pain is being transmitted and sensed. So by using differential signals or, or targeting different cells in, in the spinal cord, um, he's able to target these glial cells in the spinal cord. So why would you target these glial cells? We knew they were there all along, but what was interesting that they found is that there's a huge proportion of glial cells at a certain portion of our spinal, spinal cord. Uh, that's the same place that we've been targeting spinal cord stimulation in the thoracic spine. So by using this multiplex waveform, um, this particular technology, again, this is not FDA approved either. It's, it's, it's still an, an investigational device. But the results show that by targeting glial cells in your spinal cord, uh, you can significantly reduce a, a patient's chronic pain pro process. So what do we know about glial cells? Um, they're the support cells that maintain a homeostatic balance in the spinal cord, but we know by disruption of that um, can result in chronic pain. So uh, what this device tends to do is um, using uh, differentiated waveforms targeting glial cells, uh, we can uh, hone in on, on this particular cell type. But in, in his research, he found out that the, there's, an, there's a high overabundance of glial cells in, in the spinal cord tissue at that particular level that we always target in, in the thoracic spine. This is pretty new um, uh, emerging data uh, and their clinical trial is still ongoing, but I wanted to show you this because this is new technology that's coming uh, probably within the next five, 10 years. In their study, they showed reduction of pain from seven to to two, this is conventional stimulation. I'm going to go blast past through this because I don't want to skip the other stuff. This is equally effective in the leg as well. So next comes these ultra-minimally invasive spinal cord stimulators. Um, we had batteries that are attached to wires um, placed in the spinal canal. Well, we don't have to put batteries in anymore. Uh, we can put in a tiny receiver, um, sometimes the size of your fingernail, and put on a, a disc on the outside that will transmit the energy where this would convert that energy into a waveform. So patients no longer have to have a battery or a chunk of metal in their buttock or their back. Um, they can put on a little sticker um, where they can um, turn on with their smart device, um, use it when they need it, and take it off when they don't need it. So they offer battery-free options, smaller size, um, and we're able to use similar waveforms. And I can use this in a peripheral nerve setting as well. This is an FDA-approved device, by the way. Um, and there's multiple devices available with external battery sources. There is at least two companies available in this country now. For those that came to my spinal stenosis talk, we talked a little bit about these image-guided percutaneous uh, uh, procedures to, to decrease the, the thickened ligamentum. Uh, flavum in the, in the spine to help treat patients with spinal stenosis. Uh, this study, we also teased out that it was able to help reduce patients' uh, opiate intake. S similarly, the, this is the technique, this is the floor, fluorograms uh, where we can shave off the um, hypertrophied or the buckled ligamentum flavum. 
by decompressing their spinal canal, uh, we're able to decrease their neurogenic claudication. Um, this is the study that goes along with it. This is a two-year uh, data set uh, comparing that to epidural steroid injections. Uh, not only did they have a reduction in disability and pain, um, we were able to show reduction in pain score, uh, in reduction in opioids. This is another version where we put a, a spacer device in between the spinous processes. Um, the five-year data was able to tease out um, not only 75% reduction in pain scores, but also 85% uh, reduction in subjects utilizing opioids at five years. I'm going to skip through this. This is another um, pathology that we all deal with, people with chronic um, lumbar sacral junction pain or SI joint pain or SI joint dysfunction. It's probably a most common uh, cause of back pain after surgery, especially after fusion. Uh, SI joint problems can, 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 can be as much as 40% in patients. Never, never let a patient leave the room without examining their, their SI joint if they have back pain. Uh, they can mimic radiculopathy. Um, they can mimic hip pain. Uh, medications, we, always, we already talked about that. There's you know, potential risks and hazards. Uh, physical therapy have limitations. They do work. Um, external support devices, they can be bulky uh, at times. Uh, therapeutic injections do work. The problem is they don't last, especially if you have a dysfunction of the joint, meaning if there's a mechanical dysfunction, they don't always work. Um, I've also used radiofrequency. In, in fact, I'm in the middle of a clinical trial looking at uh, using specific types of radiofrequency to ablate the, the sacrolateral branch nerves. But minimally invasive options in terms of fusion have come in play. Uh, we're not talking about the old shark bite uh, incisions on the back with a big screw going across the SI joint. We're talking uh, minimally invasive titanium pins that can go across uh, the SI joint done through small incisions under x-ray guidance uh, where your own bone can grow into these devices, into these implants. So this is what it looks like on, on, a, on, a, on an x-ray. Um, the, the open ones are quite invasive, and they have a large, um, lengthy recovery, and they're, they're rarely done anymore. The minimally invasive options, um, they, can, they can be done almost as an outpatient basis. Uh, up until now, there's multiple options where you can put devices in from the side, or you can put devices from the back using bone grafts. So there's about three or four uh, device options uh, now. But what's interesting is that in their prospective randomized multicenter trial, they were able to show not only reduction in pain score uh, utilizing one of these uh, minimally invasive implantables, but um, they were able to show decrease in disability. This company was one of the earliest ones to, to utilize opiate usage as one of the data points. So um, the minimally invasive percutaneous SI joint fusions uh, was shown to have a 30% reduction in opiate use over two years. So what does that lead us to? We're, we're in a sort of a, a crossroads. We've got the opiate epidemic going on. We definitely have unmet treatment needs for chronic pain. We've got the burden of health economics. Things have to make sense not only um, clinically, but they have to make sense financially. Uh, we have the, the, the emerging technology side. There's definitely level one evidence, evidence available um, and not to mention that we have a serious chronic pain problem in terms of aging population, uh, disability uh, related to that chronic pain. Uh, so what we have is really a, a, a need for interventions um, and folks like you all who, who, who treat chronic pain patients. So um, 
with that, oh, these are the questions that's supposed to come with the uh, CME, so I'm not going to show you the answers. So with that, I'm going to say thank you very much, and I'm happy to take questions. Sorry, the pool's already closed. <laughs> we have one question over here. The question was in terms of what glial subtype it is, and I do not because this is a very hard concept to understand. If you're really interested, I can give you the contact information for Dr. Vallejo. We can give you the answers to that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of the meeting, everybody.